This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Joseph J. Ellis about his new book, American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. It is a timely and valuable book, show, convincing proof of your point that the study of history is an ongoing conversation between past and present in which we all have much to learn. You give us the thinking of four founders on questions still violently ongoing in today's news. Jefferson on race, Adams on the distribution of wealth, Madison on law, Washington on foreign policy. But we have time on this program for only two of the arguments, Jefferson on race, Adams on the distribution of wealth. Before we begin, maybe you can tell us why history is light in the darkness. Ah, good. It it seemed to me after teaching for 44 years that as I looked back on what I'd done, um, there had to be some reason to have students engage the past apart from just wasting their time with me in their classes. And so my own sense that there is utility in going back um, derived from my need to find meaningful my own 44 years of teaching experience. But as a student of the founders, the term they used was lamp of experience. Um, uh, One of the lesser known but important founders named John Dickinson said, reason may uh, lead us in the wrong direction. Only experience can be our guide. And in some sense, that's the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. Um, But I think that in my case, the founders themselves looked back to the to the classics of Rome and Greece, uh, Tacitus and Thucydides, and maybe throw in Plutarch and Cicero. And I believe that the founders are our classics, um, and that Jefferson and Adams, in this case, and throw in people like Franklin and Hamilton, um, really were philosophs as well as practical politicians and left a body of work that um, can teach us. You say the founding, I'm quoting you, the founding generations created all the planets and orbits in our political Uh, universe, establishing the political framework for what is an ongoing argument. That's right. There's two foundings. One is in 76 when the declaration is written and we begin a war for independence. And the second is 1787, the constitution, when we declare ourselves the first modern uh, nation-sized republic. Taken together, they are the American Revolution. But the values of the declaration and the values of the constitution continue to be the uh, defining ingredients in what we could call the American creed or in a more legalistic sense, the legal framework, which we continue to live within. It's the oldest constitution of any nation state in the modern world. And, um, and so, um, yes, we're continuing to live within the framework that they left us. Um, and while some parts of that framework clearly need revision, um, it's nevertheless 
um, the place to begin if you're trying to understand where we are and where we might want to go. They thought more clearly and more extensively on these topics than we're managing to do well, today. Well, they were forced to. I mean, they were in the midst of a crisis, and uh, and in some ways they had no choice. I mean, when Washington went off to war for Mount Vernon in April of 1775, I mean, he said to his manager, Lund Washington, is, you know, when the British come to burn down Mount Vernon, Please uh, remove my books and 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 Martha as well. Presumably not in that order, and so that there's a kind of way in which in the revolutionary era they're forced to take leadership roles because in his case, you know, if caught and if he loses, he's going to be tried, you know, taken back to England, tried, convicted, hung, and have his head put on a on a pike. Um, um, and in, in terms of the Constitution, I think we're in the 1780s, a, a set of sovereign states that are on the verge of breaking up. In there's the Confederation they form called the Articles of Confederation. They're about to break up into a series of regional confederacies, um, something like the EU. Um, and uh, the, there's a small group of them that come together to create a movement to the Constitutional Convention and then see to its ratification. So that. Um, my own hunch is that in our own time that it's going to take a crisis uh, for us to be able to match the level of leadership they they managed to achieve. And if you think about it, the three great presidents in American history, ranked number one, two, three by all scholars and political scientists, are Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. And, uh, and each of them faced a crisis that um, – uh, was existential. Um, my own sense is that the, the crisis that's coming for us that's going to force leadership to the top is climate change. Um, but um, that's just my own opinion. Well, okay, let's talk about Jefferson on race. And you call the question of race the most challenging struggle in American history. It, it was then and it is now. It is. Yeah, that's what what surprised me as I wrote that uh, was the realization that that the idea that we should be a biracial or now multiracial society is a very modern mid 20th century idea that um, that the original sin of the founding and of American history is slavery. And racism is closely connected to that. And Martin Luther King liked to say that the arc of the moral universe tends towards justice. And one can envision the American creed, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, as a kind of expanding mandate that will end slavery and and eventually in in the civil rights movement extend uh, rights of citizenship and full membership in the in citizenship to the African American population, um, but I think that um, in Jefferson's case, what you see when you go back to look at him, as I try to do in the book, is that 
One of the reasons that Jefferson, after early years as a very progressive person on the slavery issue, who really believed that slavery was doomed and clearly believed that slavery was incompatible with the values of the revolution, but he steps aside in the mid to 1780s and never comes back to that leadership position because Jefferson believes that once you free the slaves, you have to send them somewhere else. They cannot remain within the United States. Um, initially, he thinks maybe they could go out to the West, but then he says, no, that's going to be where we send the Native Americans. So he thinks it's going to be Liberia or somewhere in the Caribbean, Santo Domingo, and that he really thinks that because he doesn't believe that blacks and whites can live together in the same society. His reasons for believing that are difficult for us to swallow, but they are a belief that the Anglo-Saxon race is the purest race and that any commingling of blacks and whites will produce a mongrel society that is inferior. Um, and he re believes that to the end of his life. Um, now, in his case, what's monumentally hypocritical is that at Monticello, he's overseeing a laboratory in racial mixing in which he's directly involved. All the house slaves at Monticello are members of the extended Hemings family, and he has a longstanding relationship with Sally Hemings, has four children by her that grow to maturity, uh, probably two others that die in infancy. And um, so that, and that visitors to Monticello always remarked on the fact that the slaves they saw were all very light-skinned, in some cases, almost completely white. They didn't go down the mountain to see the other 150 slaves that were really the laborers. Um, and that in Jefferson's case, he really did think that the only way that slaves, black slaves could become full members of society was if they became white. Now, one thing you need to remember is that He's living and founders are living in a pre-Darwinian and pre-Mendel phase. They don't understand genes and they think that if Africans are moved from equatorial regions to the United States, over time, they'll probably start to get white. Um, he also thought that when they intermarried, he said the first crossing, they're still black. The second crossing, they're still black. The third crossing, when they become seven-eighths white, he said, the blood clears. And by that, that's a horrible phrase, but that's what he meant by that is they look white. And the only, the only slaves he really freed completely were the ones who were his own or uh, also, also uh, house servants in the Hemings family who were almost completely white and could pass in Virginia society. Um, and it makes me realize as a citizen of the 21st century that as we ourselves are facing a moment when the current president is playing the race card up for the first time in quite some time, and instead of playing it down, as has happened pretty much since the civil rights movement, you couldn't say certain things. But um, it's exposing the fact that there's a significant portion of the American populace, a minority, but nevertheless a sizable minority, that has never accepted the full implications of the civil rights movement. Um, and here's a case where the founders show us not what to do, but really what we're up against. Yes, I mean, uh, Jefferson is both the greatest saint and the greatest sinner in, in our history, and, and the 
you know, he's the man that uh, writes All Men Are Created Equal, but he's also a man who writes about the immovable veil of black and the permanently vile odor of the black man and the capacity for love confined to physical expression. I mean, he, he is what we would, in today's uh, world, probably call a white supremacist. Yes, he was. And that's what makes him such a resonant. He's the most resonant of the founders because, he's, as you say, Lewis, he straddles the great divide in American history. He and is a prominent figure on both sides. He writes the the magic words of American history about equality uh, and the pursuit of happiness, and um, and he believes that um, he really does. Um, but but only for white people, right? Only for white people. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's right. In some sense, Jefferson is so ardently a believer in equality because he never has to fold blacks into his formula. Even though he's got them working for him at Monticello. Right, as slaves. He's got about 200 slaves there in, in his latter years. And, um, uh, and he's the kind of guy, though, that would pass a lie detector test on the fact that he really is uh, an opponent of slavery. Um, and his views of black inferiority, while they were not, there, was, there were progressive elements of uh, the founding world that did not think that way. They thought that blacks were inferior because they were enslaved, not because they were black. And, um, and uh, in that sense, you know, he wasn't a member of the avant-garde on that issue. And he, in fact, retrograde. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, he, the moment that he makes the change in the mid to 1780s, is also the moment when he first begins to have a relationship with Sally Hemings, um, when she's still a 16-year-old girl, and this is in Paris. It's almost like his own personal and very intimate experience with interracial sex is what makes him aware of the fact that any biracial society is going to eventually become a mixed-race society. And, 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 and then the ultimate hypocrisy that he, he is he is saying that that's 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 not what we want but i think the closer we as a people in america now get to the year 2045 which is when the census people tell us that the whites uh, society whites will become a statistical minority the closer we get to that the more i think we can expect uh demagogues to use this as fertile ground because this is a theme that starts with Jefferson, that's resonant throughout American society. Um, and Baldwin, uh, who the great black writer, says that while it was, while becoming a democracy over a continent was a, certainly a major achievement, it's nothing compared to folding blacks into that democracy. Um, which will be the the biggest challenge ever to face us. And he was right about that. Um, and so we're facing into that now. And again, what I'm suggesting is not that the founders have an answer here, um, but that they have, they, they helped us to understand why it's going to be really hard to do this. You also make the point, yes, it is. And, and, and of course, it's going to be hard to do this. Much harder than we pretend. I mean, I mean, the idea that 
Martin Luther King and, and uh, in the, you know, that there was an upward arc of justice and that, 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 that there's no historical evidence for that. Well, there, you know, you might say there's a metaphysical evidence and there's biblical evidence, but, you know, the, the somewhat sardonic response is, yeah, the, up, the, the arc of the moral universe is one thing, but this isn't the moral universe. This is the United States of America. And um, I think the notion that it's just natural, it's going to happen, that the battle has been won, it's just a mopping up operation, is what I'm arguing against. I think... Um, it's, that's that's not the case. Um, and, you know, if you stand in the, the the mall and look across to the tidal basin and you stand next to Lincoln Memorial, look over to the Martin Luther King Memorial and then look to the Jefferson Memorial. I mean, there you're standing in the middle of the American dialogue on race. And um, and uh, and what would King say to Jefferson? He well, you know, when he. When he gave the I have a dream speech in 19 August of 1963, he said at the beginning, I've come to collect on a promissory note from Thomas Jefferson. But he gave the speech on the Lincoln Memorial steps, which is probably more appropriate, though, even Lincoln, although Lincoln was clearly the person who was more than anyone else responsible for ending slavery, at least among mainstream politicians. Lincoln gathered a group of uh, freed blacks together in 1863 after the Battle of Gettysburg and said to them, you know, if we do win the war, you need to be ready to go. Um, and we've sent a commission of five men to Panama to begin to explore that as a location. Um, if you look at the appendix of Uncle Tom's cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe um, says, and now after we free him, I think here's where they might go in Liberia so that Jefferson's attitude is towards uh, an interracial society is not unusual. In fact, it's right. It is the mainstream. Throughout the whole 19th century. I mean, even abolitionists believe that once you freed the slaves, you have to send them out, out of the That's country. Right. Right? That's right. Even the most, the most ardent abolitionists are the most committed to what they call expatriation. Um, and because Slavery ends in a kind of crisis in the Civil War, and and uh, and the radical Republicans want to keep the blacks in the South. Um, um, it's it never happens. I mean, there is a kind of flight uh, in the early 19th and 20th century the the migration of blacks out of the South, but into northern cities. Um, but there's never this movement, uh, the Back to Africa movement. In, in, there's a few black leaders uh, who, who assume who take that, that position, and uh, but that um, they're here and um, and they're you know they're Americans, um, and in fact, an African American in today's world can trace his or her ancestry further back in time than the average white American because they you know they're the high point of the African American migration from Africa was uh, 1770s and. Um, for the blacks, for the whites, it's you know mid to late nineteenth century. Well, I mean, right at the beginning, I mean, in the seventeen seventies, there's a large population of of blacks in the United States. I mean, we are a yeah. biracial yeah we are nation I mean, from from it, day one. Yeah, well, it, it's I mean, the first blacks come the year before the the Pilgrims landed at Maple, uh, at Plymouth Rock in sixteen nineteen. And the height of the, in terms of statistical percentage of the population, 
twenty percent. Uh, the per- in 1776, <laughs> the year of the revolution, um, is the height of the black population, uh, 500,000 out of uh, uh, 2 million. Or, and um, that that's and but 90 percent of them are living um, south of the Chesapeake in enslaved conditions. Forty percent of the population of Virginia is African-American, 60 percent of the population of South Carolina. And so while it's easy quote, easy to end slavery um, in the North. This first slave to end it, the first state to end it is Vermont, which is like, which got like three African-Americans. Um, uh, it's not going to be easy in the South for the very reasons we've been talking about. It's not just that they need that labor force. It's not just that the economy is in the cotton kingdom is solely dependent on it. It's also what happens it once they're free. And in a state like South Carolina, and then later on in places like Alabama and Mississippi in the, in the Deep South, the notion that you're going to free these people and they're going to be more of them than there are of you is politically un, impossible to imagine. Right. And, and even even after the Civil War and Reconstruction, I mean, they they have some political freedom, but no economic freedom to back it up i mean they they have no they have right, no property right. i mean we don't uh you you you, you we don't you, we don't yeah wb du bois is with his book on reconstruction is really brilliant on this and he's the first person to say this namely that that reconstruction was a, a splendid failure it was splendid because it recognized the political equality of blacks in the 14th amendment and it ended slavery with the 13th amendment um but it didn't provide them with any kind of economic uh, foundation to start again. And now you say, well, how could that have happened? Well, there's some talk about it among the radical Republicans, the 40 acres and a mule thing, and the Freedmen's Bureau, but that in the American Revolution, people that were opposed to the revolution, the loyalists had their estates confiscated. And so the only way it could have worked and it was if they were going to confiscate the southern plantations and distribute them among the freed slaves. Well, nobody was going to do that. I mean, and um, and once the troops left the south, the uh, freed slaves were uh, put into a quasi-slave condition uh, as tenant farmers working for their old masters quite often. And then we begin to see the Jim Crow policies of the late 19th century. Um, and so... And in some ways, the the racism is worse after slavery than it is during slavery because they can't control them as they they did before. And so you get the terrorist organizations like the Klan. And today, I mean, there's, you know, the talk of giving the blacks large reparations for their years Mm. of servitude. That's not going to go anywhere either. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's... um, uh, I mean, and, and you know, like uh, whites will say, well, wait a minute, this was 100 years. Reparations work when they happen within the lifespan of the people who were themselves oppressed. So in some sense, for example, the um, Japanese Americans who were put in, pr- in prison camps during the uh, World War II, reparations for them made some sense because many of them still lived on. Um, Jewish victims of the Holocaust similarly. But in this case, we're talking, you know, 150 years ago. And um, and um, you can sort of see affirmative action as a version of reparations. 
but even affirmative action is very controversial for that very reason. All right, one last point. Uh, it was said soon after Jefferson's death that if Jefferson is right, American is right. America is right. If, if Jefferson is wrong, America is wrong. But you're saying that Jefferson is flawed, and America is flawed, and it's still flawed. Right. It, I mean, um, they might want to burn this book somewhere in the vicinity of Charlottesville. I hope not. But um, uh, and and he's a great man in many respects. I mean, you, know, you can look through different windows, like like uh, religious freedom and. Um, the purchase of Louisiana, and he's going to look good. But on this issue, and this is the central issue, um, Jefferson is going to disappoint. And and but it's part of my own sort of professional lifetime commitment, not to a demonization of the founders at all, but to a recognition that they're imperfect human beings. Um, and in fact, if they weren't that, then what in heaven's name would we have to learn from them? Um, there's much to learn from Jefferson, from his flaws as well as from his greatness. Um, but this is one so, area where he has something to teach us that's um, – well, I mean, I sometimes say Jefferson tells you tells you what you want to hear, and Adams tells you what you need to know. And, um, and uh, in Jefferson's case, his own hypocrisy and his own ways of concealing from himself what he's doing is itself – uh, are, are themselves symptoms of American behavior over the last hundred years. Let's continue the thought about Jefferson telling the Americans what they want to hear and Adams telling them what they need to know. And let's carry that to the second half of the conversation, which is Adams and the distribution of wealth. And, and I want to read something to you because you probably don't have it in front of you, but it, it, it's the beginning of your chapter on uh, Adams, and, the, hmm. and this is Adams speaking. In every society known to man, an aristocracy has risen up in the course of time, consisting of a few rich and honorable families who have united with each other against both the people and the first magistrate. And so that's a prefiguration of our plutocracy presently right. settled comfortably in Washington, right? I mean, a Adams foresees that. He, right. he foresees a, a uh, what he calls a powerful but pathetic uh, establishment based on money. He does. He, he foresees what he, – in his case, he foresees the first Gilded Age and now – we're in a second Gilded Age, and that the ultimate reason why it's a plutocracy, that is to say a government driven by money, where a representative in Congress does not regard his voters as his main constituents, his or her main constituency, but his donors, um, is when you, that that occurs whenever you have extreme inequalities of wealth and the people at the very top, the top, you know, in Bernie's sense, uh, top 1%, um, uh, control, you know, like 60% of the wealth. And we, it, this is really a thing, a tough thing to, to digest because the United States invented the middle-class society. We were the first one. Tocqueville told us that in a democracy in America. 
But the first middle-class society is no longer a middle-class society. We have higher income discrepancy than any other advanced democracy in the world. Um, and Adams foresaw that. And he's engaged in a great debate with Jefferson about that during their their correspondence from 1812 to 1826. They talk about other things as well, but that this is one of the centerpieces. And see, Jefferson thinks that once we've he's he's an enlightenment uh, figure in this sense. He believes that we've left the cave, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages were the cave. We've come out of the cave. And now we've done away with those feudal legacies like primogeniture and entail. And once those are gone, as people pursue their own happiness on an individual basis, they will create wealth that is roughly evenly distributed and that it doesn't need to be adjusted, that the natural order is equality. Adam says, no, unless human nature has changed somehow when it went across the Atlantic, um, that because human beings are themselves, you're right, all men are created equal in the sense that they have equal rights, but they don't have equal abilities. They don't have equal opportunities. They don't have equal genes. Um, they don't have equal abilities. Anyway, that you, you can expect the, the the natural order of freedom in the marketplace is inequality. And unless it is corrected somehow, and in this sense, he's kind of an early progressive new dealer, unless there is a redistribution, then you're going to see an increasing inequality and eventually a plutocracy that's entrenched and very difficult to get rid of them. And that's his, you know, that's everybody thinks he's crazy when he says this, because at the time he's talking, America does have in the, the greatest degree of equality of any society, advanced society in the world. And um, um, and they also had this enormous trust fund they called the West. Um, it's occupied by about a million Native Americans, but that and that's another story, but that the the. It's the fer most fertile land on the planet, and for the next century, it's going to permit a rough form of equality to exist. But once you get an industrial – Adams didn't know the word capitalism. It doesn't really come into existence until Marx uses it, um, but that he, he talks about commercial society. Once you move from an agrarian to a commercial society, the amount of wealth will increase and the amount of inequality will increase. And that's what happens. And so in Adams's case, he's not going to tell us what to do, but he is going to tell us what not to do. If you believe in what they call supply side economics or trickle down economics, and that all you really need in a recession is a reset, things are going to work out and then the, the wealth will flow into a roughly equal pattern, then you're deluding yourself. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, and uh, in that sense, you know, unless you believe in a collective interest, the public interest, res publica, that has to take precedence, what you're going to see is a fundamentally unequal distribution of wealth and a, uh, a Congress and a national federal government that is driven by, by money. 
I mean, it's exactly what Louis Brandeis says to FDR in 1933. We must make our choice. We can have wealth, we can have democracy or wealth accumulated in the hands of the few, but we can't have both. That's that's what he said. I didn't know it was that late. I thought it was earlier than that. But uh, yeah, Brandeis is uh, very eloquent on that. And um, And the New Deal represents an attempt to create a social contract between what we now call democracy and what we now call capitalism. Neither of those terms were terms the founders used positively. Even democracy doesn't get into the language until that as a positive thing. It was more of an epithet in 1770s and 80s as mob rule, but they weren't founding a democracy. They were founding a republic. Um, but that the New Deal says we we will permit the marketplace to function freely because that will generate the greatest amount of wealth if we can also agree that that wealth needs to be distributed so as to assure the existence and the continued existence of a robust middle class. That's what the New Deal was. It wasn't socialism. I mean, socialism, I know that the people on the right will call it socialism, and they have. Socialism, and you can, as Casey Stengel said, you can look it up. Socialism is government ownership of the means of production. Um, what the New Deal was, was government regulation of the market in order to assure some rough measure of economic equity. And um, I mean, Roosevelt even thought that the pursuit of happiness meant you should have a guaranteed wage and even like make sure you have vacations. He says this in his State of the Union speech in 1944. So that, but that all, so that between 1930 and 1980, under the New Deal and the Great Society, you have, if you graph it, uh, fundamental economic equality. It it uh, it starts up in 1980. And it has continued to go up ever since. It's the highest it's ever been in American history right now. Well, I mean, Reagan was elected in 1980 in order to take down the everything, you know, just get rid of the New Deal in every possible way. I mean, that was his program. Yeah, the evil empire becomes the federal government. Um, and it, the, the, there were policies by the Republican administration under Reagan that were – that amplified the inequality. The inequality was, was also going to be happening anyway, unless you did something to, to counteract it, because of globalization and technology. Um, they were going to take away jobs, and they did. Um, and the, those jobs are not coming back. Um, in addition, I would say as a historian here, that other factors interacted with Reagan's policies to increase the inequality and to increase the hostile attitudes towards government. I mean, one was the Vietnam War. Um, uh, later, it's the Iraq War. But you know, those wars have implications about your attitude towards government because both were misguided ventures. Um, then the civil rights movement alienated people in the old whites in the old Confederacy. Then uh, Roe v. Wade alienated evangelicals so that there were – in 1961, the poll question, do you trust the government of the United States? 80 percent said yes, 20 percent said no. The same poll in 1975 
exactly reversed. 20% said yes, 80% said no. So that while, while economic policies under Republican administrations, the Republican administration of Reagan, uh, interestingly, Nixon didn't do this. Nixon continued the New Deal in most cases. Um, but that starting with Reagan amplifies the inequalities that are already going to come into existence for for other reasons. And um, uh, and I mean, how I mean, I, I think that what we need to have a dialogue about is if we want to have a new social contract between capitalism and democracy and it's not a socialistic uh, covenant, it's a democratic capitalistic dialogue. What, how do you, how do you cause that redistribution apart from just increasing taxes on the rich? There are other ways to do it. I mean, European nations do it too, but um, that that's what it's going to be difficult for us to change because two or three generations of Americans have grown up thinking of the government as them rather than us. And those same generations have never served in the military. Um, the end of the draft in 1973 um, means that very few young people have any thought of national service whatsoever or any exposure to it. Um, I'm in favor of mandatory national service. And like almost everything I'd like to see happen right now, it has no political chance of happening at all. One more point about Adams. I mean, I'm, I'm a... I'm an admirer of Adams's temperament. I mean, my own temperament is tends to be that of a skeptic instead of a believer, and uh, I like his sense of humor. Oh and, yeah, uh, he's 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 and, he's my favorite by far, Lewis, and partly because if you're a biographer, Adams is like Mark Twain. He gives you stuff that nobody else is going to give you as in terms of things in his diary, his letters. He's so, you know, if Washington's diary is all about the weather, Adams's diary about the gales, you know, you know, moving through his own soul and his correspondence with Abigail's the greatest correspondence of a husband and wife in American history. Um, he, he is a contrarian and um, which is another way of saying he's a certain kind of skeptic. I mean, who else in, would ever say, you know, if it can ever be shown conclusively that there is no life after death, my advance, my advice to every man, woman, and child on the planet is to take <laughs> opium. Um, and if he said, what, what character, why do you like Don Quixote? And he says, because I think of myself as Sancho Panza. And um, so he's, he is a character, and, and, but he is, he's the best read in history of all the founders. Um, Jefferson's well read in more things than Adams, but Adams is the best read in politics and history. And um, and uh, and he's uh, and he turns out to be right. You know, that he turns out in his assessment of the direction that the American society is going to go once you get to the 20th century to be completely correct. Talk to me just briefly about the. Uh, uh, Adams's attitude toward the illusions of the French Enlightenment and, and, the, and the invention of the word ideology. Ah, uh, yes. He, they, there's a new word that enters the language in uh, the late 18th century, early 19th century. It's, it's coined by a French philosopher called Destut de Tracy, and it's ideology, and, uh, and ideology in our language. And Adam says, what is this word? 
you know, should we, should we, how did it get into our language? Did it have to pay a tariff to get in? And, um, and does it mean idiocy or the philosophy of non compass mentis? Um, and what it turns out to mean in Adams's view is the belief that you can imagine a future and that because you can imagine it, it's possible. And this is going to be the great flaw of the French Revolution because they can imagine a perfect society, because they can imagine the end of all the oppression and the end of poverty. They believe that it's possible to achieve that. And it's and Jefferson thinks this way. He thinks like a French philosopher. And, so, and there's often this rarefied quality to Jefferson's thought process. And this is what allows him to sort of float above the realities at Monticello in some, some realm that is rarefied and, and pure. Um, and he, he, Adams thinks that this, that the French are believers in reason, not experience. And it's the Scots and the Scottish Enlightenment that understand more about experience and also emotions and the passions. And he believes that the emotions and the passions, not reason, are the driving force in history. Adams, but a, wait a minute. Our, a, Adams believes that, not Jefferson. Yes, it, yes. I'm sorry if I meant. Yeah, if yeah. I didn't say that. Yeah. I, you're correct. Yes, and um, so, I mean, in, in all, and we know the French Revolution. And he says this before it happens in 1786. He says this is going to end with a with a Caesar, and they call him Napoleon when he gets to be that. And um, and it's going to be bloody. And Jefferson thinks it's going to be, you know, a, a cakewalk, no, no, no violence. And he writes a letter, does Jefferson, to his secretary, William Short, after he's back from Paris, back in the United States in New York, as secretary of state. And and uh, Short writes him and says, you know, I look out my window and the, the heads of some of our best friends are rolling down the street in front of me. Uh, they've just been guillotined. And Jefferson says, I don't want to hear any talk about that. And he says that if if these deaths are necessary for the history to move forward, then they're justified. And, you know, this is called the Adam. He said that it's, you know, it's, he calls it the Adam and Eve letter. If, if the only people left on earth are Adam and Eve, it was worth it. And, um, ah, boy, that's you know, it's a dangerous thinking. And, um, and, and Adams had warned them against this um, during the time they were together in France. So, um, Adams is a guy worth listening to and reading, and I think if your if your listeners want to or readers want to uh, read anything, the best place to start is the Jefferson correspondence. I know it's it's wonderful that correspondence. The okay the um, where so where are we now? We're in a we're in a gilded age like the one foreseen yeah, by we're in Adams. The second Gilded Age. Yeah, and we is, are. I mean, is, is there any way out of it? I mean, the. I mean, we don't. You come to a rather mordant conclusion that we don't have the uh, intellectual strength or energy to find our way out of the Midas touch. <laughs> well, I think that I hope mordant is not right, but um, that would be upsetting to me. I end the book with a quote from Tocqueville at the very end of Democracy in America. I am full of apprehension and hope. So there is a hopeful dimension here. I do think for the foreseeable future, if we're going to look for leadership, it's probably not going to come in mainstream politics. It's going to come from outside mainstream politics. That's where the abolitionist movement came from. And that's where the civil rights movement came from. Um, I think that um, 
we can take refuge in the belief that there is a kind of cyclical pattern here. I mean, both John Meacham and Doris Kearns Gruden write about this in books they've done. And it's almost like just we can just hang on long enough. The liberal tradition is going to come forward as it did with the progressive movement of the New Deal and the and the Great Society. I'm less I'm less optimistic than that. Um, I think that the forces we're contending with are, are deeply embedded, both racism and plutocracy. And as I think I mentioned earlier, I think it's going to take a, a major crisis to get us out of here and bring us together as a people. As, as a collective unit, because that's what it has to happen. And you can see glimpses of it now in a hurricane when first responders are coming to rescue people off their rooftops and nobody asks them whether they're Trump voters or we're Republicans or whether they're black or white or whatever. We're all Americans in that moment and that, that it's going to take something like that, but that's going to happen uh, and um, in the form of climate change. But I think that we need, a, we will need a crisis to generate the level of leadership we will require in order to move to the next chapter where our destiny once again becomes manifest. On that note, uh, thank you, Joseph Ellis, for speaking with us today about your new book, American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. It's, it's truly, it's a marvelous book. I, I, I found it both informative and wise and a pleasure to read. So thank you very much. I like that last thing especially. I work really hard to make it look like it's easy. And if you like it, Lewis, that makes a big difference to me. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. Thanks for having me on. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.